This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Well, I'm Karen Coffee Wood, and I have lived in the Durham house since 1997. Actually, the first night we stayed here was the anniversary of the murders. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> and I got a good deal on the house because of it, because they had, the people that were here before tried to sell it for a long time, and it was on the market for a long time, and they couldn't sell it, because everybody's like, oh, no, that's where those people got murdered, and we're not buying the house. And, and I got a good deal on the house for the time period. I was talking to my dad about it, and he said, look, it's an investment. He said, the house didn't kill the people. And it was close to my work, and it just, and, you know, my kids needed a house with a yard. I mean, you know, it just, it's just a house to me. Karen Wood and her husband considered the deal on the Durham house as a stroke of good fortune. It had everything they needed in a home for their growing family. And soon after moving in, they would welcome their two children. But they would learn that the good deal on the house did come at a price after all. When Weston, my son, was little, I thought maybe one night he had crawled out of his crib and was running around upstairs. I was down in the den watching TV with my husband, and I was like, oh, he crawled out of his crib. Here I go, and I go upstairs, and I go in his room, and he's sound asleep. And I'm like, oh, my. <laughs> you know, it was weird, because it did. It sounded like footsteps running around. But no, no one was there. I'll be cleaning sometimes, and I can, I can see a shadow. And it kind of gives you a creepy feeling when you're when I'm downstairs in the den. We have a den in the living room, and when you're in the den, you can hear footsteps sometimes upstairs because the master bedroom's above the den. Karen isn't the only one that has experienced something paranormal in the house. My daughter, when she was little, she kept saying she saw a woman in white. And I was like, well, what does she look like? And she said, I don't know, really. I can't tell her face. It's She's just dressed all in white, and she sits on the couch. Well, I didn't think anything else about it. And I was like, oh, you'll be fine. One night when uh, my grandson came to spend the night, he was like three years old. I got up in the middle of the night about, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock to use the bathroom. And I come back out, and he's sound asleep, sleeping in the bed with me. And I lay down, and... I closed my eyes and I just could feel something staring at me. And then I woke up and there she was. There's the woman white. I swear to God, she's standing beside my bed. And it startled me. And I went to, to lean up out of the bed and I gasped for air. And like all of a sudden, I just went into a deep sleep. It was the creepiest thing I have ever experienced. I mean, I've seen shadows and I've heard things and I've seen things fall, you know, like picture frames or whatever fall. It, and but it's, that was the creepiest and everybody's like oh you were dreaming i was like no i was wide awake karen's son weston said that a boot was hurled down the stairs once when he was home alone visiting friends have witnessed the shadows and footsteps too but perhaps the most telling sign that the durhams may still live in that house with karen and her family comes from the family dog the dog will start barking. And I'm like, what are you barking at? And there's no one there. He'll bark at the bathroom where they dump the bodies in the bathtub. He'll just stand there and bark and bark and bark. The bathtub in the house has never been changed. 
It's the same one the Durhams were found slumped over 50 years ago. And in one crime scene photo, you can see the Durham family's small dog cowering in the corner of the bathroom underneath Virginia's legs, which were propped up on the adjacent toilet, unwilling to leave its master's side. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Season 2 of In the Red Clay. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When I visited Watauga County Sheriff Len Hageman, we spoke in depth about Bryce, Virginia, and their son, Bobby Durham, who were brutally murdered on February 3, 1972. About their only living child, Ginny Sue Durham, and her husband, Troy Hall. About the Dixie Mafia, Billy Burt, Billy Wayne Davis, and about the initial suspects arrested for the murders. We talked about the crime scene being bungled from the start as citizens were allowed to walk throughout the house, contaminating evidence. But the question I was really there to ask was who set up the murders to begin with? Whether it was the Dixie Mafia that was responsible for the actual killings or not, someone had to initiate it if it was, in fact, a hit. And my first clue as to who might actually be responsible for this came from the press conference the sheriff gave when the closing of the case was announced in February. Many in law enforcement and the general public have tried to speculate who arranged these murders and why were the Durhams targeted. Some have even speculated that the son-in-law is responsible for the hit. Sheriff Hageman tells me that the Durham's son-in-law, Troy Hall, came from neighboring Wilkes County, North Carolina, and that the Hall family was a little on the fringe of society. They were just very, very close, clannish, but they were into a lot of things. But nobody ever could kind of pin it on anything, and that was kind of, you know, everybody in Wilkes almost was, was hauling liquor. Uh, and, and, I mean, that was that, that was the thing to do, and, and that's how they made a lot of money, because they, you know, the agricultural in Wilkes and stuff, you had to come up with something. And so a lot of the stuff that they did was illicit. 
They were into the, the truck stop pills back at the time, you know, the yellow jackets and the black beauties and all that kind of stuff. And prostitution, drugs, alcohol, or you know, white liquor, and heaven knows who else. And like I say, they did, they did everything, pretty much. Black beauties. There's a name we've heard before. The highly potent amphetamine pills that were rampant in the 60s and 70s. They were marketed as diet pills and also to truckers to use to stay awake on long hauls. But really, they were legal speed and became the drug of choice for the Dixie Mafia. Billy Burt would actually drive to Mexico frequently to bring back hundreds of thousands of these pills to sell and use. So could this be a possible connection between Troy Hall and the Dixie Mafia? I've learned Troy Hall was the main person of interest behind the Durham hit, but there was never enough proof to make an arrest. And with the Black Beauties now in the picture, I've learned that there might be a possible connection with Troy to the Dixie Mafia. And some of what I've learned about Troy Hall falls under the category of disturbing. Troy Hall died in December of 2019 at 68 years old. According to his obituary, he was loyal to those he loved and had an infectious smile and spirit that will be remembered by all who were fortunate enough to know him. When I read his obituary, I almost gagged at what a kind and gentle man he was. Oh yeah, absolutely. I almost vomited. Rufus Edmiston, a Boone native, served as Attorney General in North Carolina from 1974 to 1984, and later became Secretary of State. At the time it occurred, I was in Washington in the middle of Watergate. I was the Deputy Chief Counsel of the Watergate Committee. I'm the first person in history to deliver a subpoena on a sitting president. I delivered the subpoena from the Watergate Committee on President Nixon. Yeah, this guy's been around the block. Edmiston became heavily involved in the Durham case in 1974 when he made a promise to the mother of Bryce Durham. She looked at me one time when I landed at the Wilkesboro Airport and said, I want you to help solve this case before you die. And I never got that out of my mind. And of course, I assigned SBI agent to it and worked on it for years and years, along with the sheriff and... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, is still a mystery. Edmiston's office ran into the same issues we've heard about before. The crime scene was like something out of Lum and Abner, or the, the Three Stooges, with that, how that got messed up, because things were so, uh, back in those days, it was sort of wild west in law enforcement. It was just uh, a, a bungled uh, crime scene. They moved things around, they tromped all over the place. If you went about it with all today's stuff, you would, you would have preserved a lot more evidence. From what I've been told, it was just a, a, a mammoth screw-up at the crime scene. Everybody was just tromping around, speculating crazy things, that it could have been some people that were on a, a military mission, The people were, were brought over from Asheville. That got let go because there was not enough evidence to hold them, and it all came back to back to square one, I, I would have to put that case as one of the most mysterious. I, I've, I've had a couple when I was attorney general that I worked on, and that one is... 
the most curious of all. Suspicion around Troy Hall all begins with the phone call Virginia Durham allegedly made to Troy and Jenny's home on the night of the murders, while the intruders were still in the house. In our second episode, you heard Stoney say there are people killing her husband and son, and she calls Troy. Troy stated Virginia told him the assailants were black men, but that went nowhere. And there was no way to even verify that that was ever actually said. People I've spoken to don't believe a call from Virginia was ever placed at all, that it was made up. But if Troy were behind the initiating of all of this, why? He thought there would be a pile of money there and and he would get his share, is my assumption. He thought, in my opinion, that there was going to be a sack of money there that would be worth their trip up there to the mountains and he would get his share. And of course, I can just imagine how pissed off they were at him for sending them on this wild goose chase where they had to kill three people in the, in the meantime. When Rufus says they, he's referring to the Dixie Mafia, who he firmly believes did commit the murders. Are you, in your mind, uh, you know, at peace with the fact that the Dixie Mafia were the ones that were responsible? Totally. Yep, I'm totally convinced. Troy was very resourceful. He had a bad background when he was brought up in Wilkes County. He was a strange bird then. It wouldn't have been hard for Troy to do that because his mind seemed to work that way, of finding people of ill repute to associate with. And that's how these hits worked, at least when Billy Wayne Davis was involved. If you knew of someone who had a large sum of money in their home, you gave the information to Davis or one of his constituents. You know, a guy who knows a guy. And after the robbery was successful, you would get a cut. Stoney, who's also read every word of this case file, agrees with Rufus Edmiston on this being all about the money. This had to be done on the promise of pay and what they got out of the house. You gotta understand, you ain't talking about high high intelligence as a criminal goes. Not high intelligence as, as society goes or normal people. That intelligence is relative to his peers, not other people. These guys did not have that. They did not. Hell, I was a rocket scientist compared to them from what I read in this file. For Stoney, the way the house was ransacked, cash was left and silverware was taken, it leads him to double down on his belief that this was not done by a professional like his father. If I took the file, Sean, and just simply published it as a book, and people could read it, (laughs) I wouldn't have to open my mouth. It's obvious as a nose on your face that these group of 20-year-olds, Troy, his brothers, Casita, Chandler, every one of them was unprofessional, young punks compared to the hardened, seasoned Dixie Mafia, as people call it, of my father and his group. They was no more in comparison to the skating ring I went to, and respense was not our lounge. What was so urgent they had to go up there and get caught in a snowstorm to kill these people so awkwardly? <laughs> no, 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 no. If they had been brought into it, they'd have took charge. They'd have said when it went down, they'd have done it more professional. Troy Hall wouldn't call any shots. Instead, everything was done on Troy Hall's timeline. Everything. Nobody could have done that except Troy Hall. 
I ask Stoney to go a little deeper. Example, the dollar wheel that Bryce either did or just wanted Troy to think and had Eller make sure Troy noted the day before he was killed. Him calling his daughter and telling her that he's taking the car, do not come back to his house. Never bring Troy back around. Changing the locks at his home, changing the locks at his business. And Troy, so bent out of shape with frustration and anger, making remarks to people, letting them know that he's got it in for him. According to the case file, this is actually all true. Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham didn't like Troy. And Troy didn't like them either. He worked for Bryce in the dealership's service department, but was fired. The Durhams didn't care for the entire Hall family and wanted their daughter to have nothing to do with Troy. And Bryce and Virginia apparently had a blowout fight with Jenny over this, which resulted in them telling her she and Troy were no longer welcome in their home. They changed the locks at the house and the business. Bryce told his friend and sales manager at the dealership, Ike Eller, to make it known in Troy's circle that his daughter had been written out of the family's will and that she was only left $1 in a nearly $1 million estate in today's money. Whether the will was actually ever changed or not could never be verified, but it seemed Bryce wanted Troy to believe that it was. Days later, the Durhams were dead. How the hell are you going to talk to Billy Davis or Billy Burke? in the Dixon Mafia land, Georgia, in that time frame, and set this up and have them come there and do that from a time the shit hit the fan, the shit hit the fan within 48 hours of them dying. And it gets even deeper regarding the will. Within hours after they died, Troy was tearing his office apart. In his words, hunting for the copy. I know damn well that they made a copy. And when he got to Bryce's wife's desk, it was locked. He took it a, a little file, got into the drawer. When he seen the copy of the will wasn't there that he was hunting for, he was so mad he kicked her shoes from across the showroom. That's the testimony of the sales manager and the service manager. I cannot see why people are trying to import any type of professional into this. There's nothing about it professional. No, they forest gump through this. It don't none of it makes sense. Here's what makes sense. <laughs> Troy Hall is desperate. He wanted to find that will if it was one. This is all in the case file. Just hours after the murders occurred, Troy was hunting for a copy of the Durham's will, believing it would be kept in Virginia's desk, which he broke into. He was described as checking her coat pockets as well, and when a copy of the will didn't turn up, he was livid, kicking a pair of her shoes clear across the room. Troy Hall had a potential motive and connection to the Dixie Mafia through the Black Beauties and Moonshine. But there's one more piece missing. Where does Ginny Durham, his wife, fit into all of this? There's no way Ginny would let him walk with all that money unless she had a fear of going to jail herself. She refused a lot of tests her whole life. Jenny Sue Durham and husband Troy Hall were suspected to have involvement in the Durham family murders almost immediately. But there was no proof to make an arrest. 
Aside from the questionable story around the phone call Troy allegedly received from Virginia, his and Jenny's behavior was noted by multiple sources as being very unusual and suspicious in the days following the murders. Documents and recorded statements in the case file reveal that Jenny did not cry over the deaths of her family members and actually seeming to be in a jovial mood the very next day. She was described as flirting with mechanics at the dealership shortly after, and a co-worker of hers stated to authorities that I never saw anyone as bitter towards their parents as Jenny. Well, I thought about that. And when it comes to me that the daughter got insurance and refused a polygraph test, in my mind, I'll just tell you straight up, there lies uh, the avenue to follow. After the grisly murders of the Durhams, Jenny and Troy refused to take polygraph tests, something she has still not done to this day, and were difficult and uncooperative with investigators. Sheriff Hageman told me he believes something else is going on here, though, and it all circles back to Troy. There again, he's very intelligent. He would not, he would not say anything. And, and Jenny, too, she shut down, I think because he had control over her, uh, uh, he certainly influenced her. And, and I think that she was scared probably of Troy uh, and, and the whole family. She just doesn't go there. I don't know if it's because it, she and Bobby were close and I, I don't know if mentally she, she shuts down. That's a possibility there again. I, I, I think she is, again, she's fearful and just, just doesn't want to open that door. Rufus Edmiston echoed this sentiment. He doesn't believe Jenny had anything to do with the deaths of her family, regardless of how it might appear. I do not. I interviewed her personally one time myself with a, a lawyer out of the Attorney General's office. She had steel blue, cold eyes, I remember that. But I was satisfied that she had nothing to do with it. I think she was under Troy Hall's spell. He was such a compelling figure. And she, she just wishes that somehow she could get it behind her, but I, I doubt she ever will. But I do not think that she had a thing to do with it. It, it almost seems impossible that she wouldn't, but you can live with somebody that's under your spell. We, we've seen that happen, the, sort of the Stockholm Syndrome. I have to feel sorry for Jenny Sue I, I really believe that she was under his spell. She had nothing to do with the planning or the commission of this crime. Troy was cunning and intelligent, well beyond his years. When I spoke with one of Troy's childhood friends, I learned that these are traits that go way back to his youth. I grew up in the Fair Plains community of Wilkes County. We attended Fair Plains Elementary School in the first and second grade, but I believe what I'm telling you is from the first grade. There was a fellow student in there, and I'm maybe six years old. It's Troy Hall. 
Troy just seemed to have, he seemed to be a little different than anyone else. He seemed to be more mature. He seemed to have something you really can't put your finger on. It wouldn't be charisma, but it would be, you could tell he was extremely bright. You know, I took to him and, and uh, uh, more so than he did me, I'm sure. Ted Brown says he went to play with Troy on a Saturday morning at his home, which was situated below an old country store. Dad take me down in his pickup truck and pulled into this old country store. And we pulled where I walked into what would be the basement of it uh, to play with Troy. Well, Troy just set a fix to a chair. I mean, he was just in a chair and stared straight ahead. Didn't interact with me. You know, when you're six years old, thereabouts, you just don't process things because you don't have a lot to draw from. I hadn't been there long, and I saw down a dark hallway an old woman peeking, looking, staring me down, really with a mean scowl look. You know, being down the shadows of that hallway was uh, bad enough, but being stared down, you know, certainly wasn't um, a comfortable feeling. Even at that age, uh, I learned quickly that I wasn't welcome there. Troy never interacted with me. His mom stared me down and I went outside, jumped in the pickup, and left with that. After this unusual encounter, Ted lost contact with Troy, other than in passing. He does remember that Troy was advanced in school a grade or two because of his intelligence. But the next time these two really interacted was years later after Ted graduated high school and returned from a stint in the Army in the spring of 74. It's a memory that has not faded. I needed a spring-summer job and somehow got the job through the halls, uh, Troy Hall and his brother. But I do remember one Friday evening, it was getting late, I felt a little uh, embarrassed about mentioning to Troy that it was payday and, you know, about getting paid. And he said, oh, jump in the car. By this time, Ted had become aware that Troy was a person of interest in the murder case. I jumped in the car and he reached behind and pulled out, I believe it was a three-ring binder with company checks on it. And I remember the cast of the sun, the color of the sky, everything. I remember how sweaty and tired I was. The sky had pink and yellow in it. That was in front of us. And Troy started writing the check. And understand, I don't have a clue why I would say what I did. It was not a smart thing to say, but I didn't know what to talk about. I was searching for something to say to break the ice, and I had heard that he was being watched by the State Bureau of Investigation, the SBI. So 
out of the blue, I say, I guess it's really tough being watched all the time by the SBI. And I remember this Kodak moment. Troy lifted the pen from the checkbook just far enough not to touch the check and made a swirling motion with his pen, looked straight out at the sunset, appeared deep in thought, and he said, it's like playing a game of chess. You have to think three to four moves ahead at all times. And then he proceeded writing the check, and that was it. It seems that even then, Troy knew how to play the game. He took an interest in law and eventually received his law degree through the mail. At the time, you could become a lawyer if you passed the written bar exam, whether you attended law school or not. But there's more. Not only was Troy into black beauties, moonshine, and other illicit drugs, as I'm told, but also... Well, it, 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 it was, he, he was a porn man, yes. He had a strange relationship with women. He thought there were simply objects to be uh, sexually abused and and almost, uh, well, just with reckless abandon, abuse. In the case files, I noticed numerous statements alleging that Troy was part of an underground porn ring. Troy was into porn bestiality, anything that was wacko or perverted, Troy was in it. You heard that right. Claims of bestiality. In one interview with Troy in the case file, an investigator asked him about the alleged porn ring, to which he replies, I don't recall that, unless you're talking about the stuff with animals. The investigator quickly ended the interview at that point. Aside from being a man with serious skeletons in his closet, these stories add up to a stack of questions that can't be dismissed when looking at the deaths of the Durhams. Whether he intended for them to be killed or not is something we'll probably never know for sure. But the information we've learned is hard to ignore. Not long after the murders, Troy took the money from the Durham's estate, which included acres of property, the dealership, and a $100,000 insurance policy, and apparently left Ginny with nothing. Troy and Ginny soon divorced, and he moved to Lawrenceville, Georgia, to practice law, which, oddly enough, is very close to Winder. But while he and Ginny were still married, a woman he was dating named Debbie Foster was killed in a suspicious hit-and-run accident. It was later discovered that Troy had taken out a $100,000 life insurance policy on her and named himself as the beneficiary shortly before. He would soon also take out a $100,000 policy on Jenny as well. Did Troy Hall initiate multiple murders, benefit financially from each of them, and get away scot-free. And without Troy ever being touched by any law enforcement, 
They never had enough to arrest him on, quite obviously, which is how smart he was. And it's just sort of by chance that this came up by the information out of Georgia some 50 years later. In every aspect, how, how can a man go on, become a lawyer, become an assistant prosecutor, and unless you are smart enough to be two steps in front of law enforcement all the time, and Troy did it. He pulled it off. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and recorded the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound design by Shane Freeman. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Season two of In the Red Clay, Durham, is a six-episode series with new episodes available every Monday. To keep up with this and my other podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the series, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.